You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. We're beginning a new sermon series in the book of Daniel entitled Hope in the Midst of a Hostile World. And uh, I think the theme of Daniel is one of hope. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. But Daniel is such a great book in the Old Testament, contains some of the greatest stories, uh, most beloved stories uh, in the Bible. I think you've got the four young Hebrew boys refusing to eat the Babylonian food, which we'll talk about this morning. You've got Nebuchadnezzar and his famous dreams. You've got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being thrown in the fiery furnace, Uh, Daniel in the lion's den, all of these great stories uh, that I don't know about you, but I remember growing up reading and uh, being read to me and learned about in Sunday school. And then you have the last six chapters of Daniel, chapters 7 through 12, which consist of visions that Daniel has about the future. Someone said that the first six chapters of Daniel are some of the easiest portions of Scripture to understand, and the last six are some of the most difficult in the Bible to understand. So we have our work cut out for us, but what a blessing I trust this study will be for us. We look at chapter one today and the wonderful knowledge that there is a God in Babylon. Daniel chapter one, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to share in the king's palace. And, here was the purpose, to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate, and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, 
Test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they, brought, that they be, should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word today. We pray uh, that we would have uh, ears to hear it, Lord. And uh, ask, Lord, that you might use me today as your servant. I pray that you would increase and I would decrease and your word would go forth. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. It might be difficult for us to imagine what it was like for these teenagers, for Daniel and his friends who had been exiled from their home in Jerusalem to now live in Babylon, a different culture, a different language, a different so-called gods, different everything, vastly different morals. How do you cope with all of that, in addition to the brokenness and, and bitterness that you would feel from having been cut off from your families, taken away from them, taken away from your land, your family, and your home? How do you remain faithful and hopeful in the midst of that? There's a psalm that kind of gives heart to what that may have been like about the spiritual difficulty of the days in which Daniel lived. It's Psalm 137 these words say this, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the widow willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. Here's the question, but how shall we sing the Lord's song? in a foreign land? It's a great question that was capturing something of the emotion and the challenge of their days and, and really not just their days but our own times. We feel some of this, don't we? As heavenly citizens, as Christians who, whose citizenship is in heaven, how do we sing the Lord's song as an exile here on the earth? 
We might imagine Daniel and his friends asking a similar question, having been hauled off to Babylon. And and I think in some ways, Daniel is providing an answer to that question. Chapter 2, verse 44 might be the key verse of the book and the verse that expresses our theme of hope. It says this, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Those are remarkable words. Nations and empires, thrones and dominions will rise and will fall, but the kingdom of God will last forever. It will last forever. The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And you see, the Christian who sees this and believes this will be able to sing the Lord's song in the foreign land, whatever foreign land that God places us. Now, if that verse is reminding us that there is a God in heaven, chapter 1 is really reminding us that there is a God in Babylon. And in fact, the God of heaven is the God of Babylon. He's the God of Israel, and he is the God of the whole universe, and he is the one who is in control of the circumstances of life. It's three, there were three, chapter one, I think, hammers this home in three different, three phrases that were, were used. And the phrase is simply this, the Lord gave, or God gave. And, and you see it there in verse 2, if you look, you see that phrase. You see it again in verse 9, and you see it again in verse 17. The Lord gave, or God gave. And, and the, the emphasis seems to be from this chapter is that God is present and working even in Babylon. And you can see how hopeful this is right from the very beginning. How will these young boys, these young men remain faithful? How will they find hope in the midst of their circumstances? How will they be able to sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Well, the answer to that is, it is no less than the fact that God is there with them in Babylon. This God is a gracious God. He is graciously working in and around them in their circumstances that they find themselves in. How do they discern his presence among them? That's what we're looking for in our text this morning as we think about those three phrases. First of all, we notice that God's sovereign grace is present with them. Verse 1, in the year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And here's the first phrase, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Now we're given some historical data here about what's going on in Daniel and some theological explanation as as well. The year is around 605 BC when King Nebuchadnezzar pays King Jehoiakim of Jerusalem a visit. Now remember from our study in Jeremiah, there were three invasions of Israel. This is the first one, 605 BC. There was another one, 597 
And then the big one, the final one, was 586, in which Jerusalem was completely destroyed, the temple destroyed. But this is the first one here that Daniel is talking about. When Nebuchadnezzar comes and he, he tells us he takes some of the vessels of the house of God and he brought them to the house of his God. And we'll see in just a moment that he also took members of the royal family, youths such as Daniel and his friends. It's interesting though, verses 1 and 2, the focus is on the vessels or these articles of the temple. Nebuchadnezzar, as we're, we're going to see throughout the story, he didn't just have gods in Babylon, but Nebuchadnezzar believed himself to be a god. Uh, and uh, to bring these articles of gold and silver from the temple in Jerusalem was, was an expression of that arrogance. His belief was, in a sense, that he was over Yahweh. He was over God. He was triumphing over Israel's God. And there's no doubt that's how the popular opinion would have been. Perhaps the media would have viewed this. The perception was that Israel's God was not able to protect them. That he was no match for Nebuchadnezzar. And if the people were losers in this, it essentially meant that the people's God was a loser in this. Yahweh was a loser in this. And you get the sense, even in that psalm that we read of the captive Israelites, when they're being tormented by the Babylonians, why don't you sing us one of your songs of Zion? Let's hear it. It was a taunt, a gloating over them. It brings to mind an earlier story involving the Philistines back in 1 Samuel chapter 5. You may remember the, the time when they stole the Ark of the Covenant uh, from the, in a battle with Israel and they brought it to their house, their, their temple, if you will, their gods, and they laid it by their, the statue of their god Dagon. They laid it at the feet of Dagon because Yahweh was defeated by, by Dagon. And you remember the next morning they got up and what happened? That statue of Dagon was laying over, bowing before the ark of the Lord. Uh, in fact, he, you might say he was cracking up in the presence of the ark. Well, there's no mention of something like that here. And while the historical explanation may have been that Babylon overcame Israel by their great might, maybe the popular opinion of the day was that Babylon's gods were greater than Israel's gods. But what does verse 2 tell us, church? Who is in charge of this? The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. This is that first mention of the Lord gave. And what it reminds us of right from the beginning is that in spite of present appearances and maybe even popular opinions of the day, that there is a God in Babylon. And it is not Nebuchadnezzar. And it is not one of their many gods that they were worshiping. It is the God of heaven, Yahweh, who is there. And though it may not look like it in present experiences, and I'm certain for those teenage boys who had been carted off, it certainly did not feel like that God was with them. But this God, our God, is reigning over the affairs of the world. He is ruling over nations, ruling over kings, and even ruling over teenagers. This is where Daniel's story begins. 
And it's wonderfully refreshing that there's a God who's at work behind the scenes. Daniel and his friends are not in Babylon by accident. They are not in Babylon because Nebuchadnezzar was really, really mighty. They are not there because of happenstance. They are not there by fate. They are there by the hand of God. And their future was not controlled by Babylon or its gods. Their very lives, their, their, their future was controlled by the Lord, the God of heaven. And so here's the, here's the point for us, I, I think, to live faithfully in exile and to be able to sing the Lord's song in a foreign land. We need to know this truth. And we need not forget this truth that our God has not forsaken us, his people. He is sovereign over all. And though the world may not see this, cannot see this, in fact, only his people know the secret of verse 2 that the Lord gave. Only we can see this. And that perspective is key to persevering in hope. It's key to remaining, uh, having this, this vision, this picture, framing the events of all that is happening around us, that we have a God who is faithful is sovereign. Just a brief illustration of this. Michael Green in his book, The Empty Cross of Jesus, he tells of how the early Christians recorded the deaths of their martyrs. And they listed their names to remember them, and then they put the date of their death when they were put to death, but they always added the phrase after that, and the phrase was this. This happened under the rain of the Lord Jesus. Now think about that. Their deaths happened in the rain of the Lord Jesus. You know, sometimes that's the only glue that enables us to sing the Lord's song in difficult times. That we have a God who is sovereign over all. You can cling to that, Christian. And sometimes... That's all we have to cling with. But for David, or Daniel and his friends, there were, there were more evidences of God's grace. I want you to notice, secondly, God's silent grace. And this is the point of the larger uh, part of the passage, verses 3 through 16. Uh, I mentioned in verse 9, we have the second God gave phrase. This is a, a different kind of section here, a different kind of siege, rather, that's happening in this section. It's one that doesn't involve armies, uh, battering rams and catapults and all this kind of stuff, that's, that's over with. But this is a battle for the mind. Verse 3, Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, this chief unit, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. You see, Nebuchadnezzar will, would not stop at just having their bodies by which to serve them. He also wanted their minds. He wanted their souls. He wanted their wills and their affections. He wanted them to dress like Babylonians and to eat like Babylonians and to speak like Babylonians and ultimately to behave like Babylonians, Jeff Thomas put it like this, he wants to Babylonize them. 
He wants them to forget their past. He wants them to forget their life, their values, and most importantly, he wants them to forget their God. And so he chooses young men, and he brings them, interestingly, not to the prison, but to the palace to do this work. Everything about them must change. Now, we should pause and think about the larger narrative of Scripture here, because the, the, the Scriptures teach us, Revelation teaches us this kind of vividly, that there's this about this conflict that we are in. It's the same conflict today. Metaphorically, in, Re- in Re- Revelation, it's between Babylon and Jerusalem. There's a conflict between the two. In reality, it's between, it's between the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of Satan, isn't it? It's between the church and the world. It's between the Lord and the Antichrist. It's between holiness and worldliness. And, and in short, the enemy of our souls is working to Babylonize us. It is warring against us to turn us away from Christ and to the world. Now Ferguson notes here the tactics of our enemy from this very passage. We see them. They have not changed. There's isolation. Right, this is the point of removing Daniel from, and his friends from Jerusalem. He wants to isolate them. He wants to separate them from the regular worship of God, from the teaching of God, from the people of God. He does not want them to be with them. There's also indoctrination. Verse 4, they're, they're to be taught the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Now, make no mistake about what this means. This is not mere education. This is not, I I just want you to learn the Babylon language. No, what's being described here is a whole new way of thinking and life. Nebuchadnezzar intends to train these young men to have an ungodly view of the world, to, to think like an unbeliever, where God is not in their thoughts, nor is there the fear of God in them. He wants to teach them an unbiblical worldview. Third, there's confusion. We see it in verse 7. He, the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. And these were the names of Babylonian gods. Daniel he called Belshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. They're, they're to forget their names, their Hebrew names. They're to embrace who they are now, citizens of Babylon, citizens under gods of Babylon. Once again, if Nebuchadnezzar could change these men to think like Babylonians, he would get them to live like Babylonians. There's isolation, indoctrination, confusion. Finally, there's compromise. Verse 5, they're we're told the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drinks. Ferguson notes here, this attack was far more subtle and therefore potentially far more lethal. Somebody in Nebuchadnezzar's palace knew enough about the human heart to see that most men have their price and that good times, comfort, self-esteem, and a position in society are usually a sufficient bid for the soul. Can you not feel that these tactics are still being used on your soul today, believer in Christ? You should. 
You should wake up to them. Isolation from God's influence to produce holiness in our lives. Indoctrination with worldly, unbiblical ways of thinking. Confusion about our real identity and purpose in life. Compromise with the riches and values and cares of this world. Perhaps there's never been a time when so many professing Christians have been so fashion and image conscious about themselves and so few have willing to dare to be different, not for the sake of just being different, but for the sake of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Which I think is why Daniel chose to draw this line in verse 8, Daniel Resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. There's debates about this. I, I don't think this had to do with the food being unclean, according to Old Testament. That's possible, but not likely. Nor, I, I, I don't, I'm not so sure that it, I'm persuaded that it was food offered to idols, because I think even these vegetables that they chose would have been offered to idols as well. Um, I think this is about Daniel drawing a line to preserve some distinctiveness in his life. Some distinctiveness to keep from being totally squeezed into this Babylonian mode. Daniel may have begun to have thoughts to himself, you know, this is, there's a real danger. I could be sucked up into all of this stuff. And so we should pause here and note briefly how the story highlights, I think, not just Daniel's resolve, which is quite remarkable, but Daniel's recognition of all this to begin with. His wisdom in seeing how critical this moment was. Davis notes this, this episode didn't have a crisis written all over it like the raging furnace fire of chapter three that we're gonna see or the ravaging lions in chapter six. The circumstances here are far more subtle, but it's in these, note this, it's in these smaller commitments that God uses to prepare us to stand under more severe threats. Well, that's true. Sometimes, Christians might wonder whether or not they could be faithful to Christ and facing martyrdom. Would you be able to do that? But, but, but the answer to such really is, is, are you standing firm today, right now? How, how you behave at your class reunion? How you, how you behave in the break room at work? Or on the... The, the soccer field or the football or field or in your living room. Because the decision to live Christ-like, holy lives is, is, is not initially made in big things, but it's made in the details of life. And so we note Daniel's wisdom in recognizing this early on. I need to draw some lines. We also note his restraint and respect. The fact that Daniel's not making an issue of everything here, is he? He doesn't protest that they've given him new names. He could have made an issue of that. He doesn't protest that he's, uh, he's having to learn a new language uh, of Babylon. He's not protesting that they're making him read books that he doesn't want to read about Babylonian literature. You know, as Christians, we're going to face many things in which we don't agree. But not every issue is a no-surrender issue, is it? And so there's wisdom in Daniel's restraint. And even how he protests this diet, he's, he's 
there's a wisdom there. He's he's asking permission. He's offering a a test. Uh, Just give us a trial for 10 days and see how we're doing then. And the man thought, apparently, the servant thought, well, there's no harm in that. They're going to be here three years. Surely I can give them 10 days to see how it's going to turn out. And of course, here's where God's grace comes in. It's that second God gave, isn't it? Verse 9. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Isn't that incredible? God gave this. What sort of God is this? That even the heart of Babylonian king's servant was in the Lord's hand in granting this kind of favor. This is no small thing. And again, it's evidence of God's quiet grace, God's silent grace, God's providential grace. The world would never acknowledge this. The world cannot see this. But part of the goodness and faithfulness of God and the beauty and how he works in our lives, God granted them favor. You know this, that the success of Daniel's resistance here and really the success of our own pursuits to be faithful, holy. It depends on the Lord's grace and favor in our lives, doesn't it? Oh, that he'd only give us favor and grace. Related to this is the the third statement that I mentioned that we might call it God's subversive grace And subversive simply means to undermine an established system. It's to kind of to reverse an expected outcome. And we get a glimpse of this in verse 15, don't we? Because at the end of 10 days, it says, it's seen that they, Daniel and his friends, were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. How awesome is that? They grew fatter, it says, from eating just vegetables, which is, by the way, why I try to stay away from vegetables as a good measure. (laughs) No, that's not what it is, is it? This isn't about that. This is about the Lord's, their constant dependence on the Lord to strengthen and keep them in their lives. And is this not the work of the Lord subverting this whole program of how the expected outcome is going to be? The Lord, after 10 days, is fattening up these these Hebrew youths with just vegetables. He's subverting Nebuchadnezzar's system of babylizing them. It leads to our third God gave them statement, verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom and Daniel had understanding and all visions and dreams. That doesn't mean that they didn't study or invest themselves. That's not what that statement means. Once again, it means that God's goodness surrounds, God's goodness attends and prospers their work so as to make them faithful. So much so, verse 18 and 19, at the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Verse 20 explains further, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better 
than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all of his kingdoms. How can that possibly be? We know how that is. God gave that, didn't he? And it's such a great irony here. We talk about the subversiveness of all of this, the, the undermining, undercurrent of, of all of this because here at the beginning of the story, here are these young Jewish captives and exiles, but by the end of the story, they're literally faring better than all of the people in the kingdom of, of Babylon. They're, they're at the head of the royal palace service corps, if you will. Verses one and two, we read about Ju uh, Judah's shameful defeat and, and the pillaging of the temple that took place. And here we meet the victory of Judah's captives as they're serving literally next to the very throne. You see, the losers have by the grace of God become the winners. This is God's subversive work, giving grace to the humble but opposing the proud. Isn't that wonderful? And you know, when you know this, you can sing the Lord's song in the hardest of places, can't you? Would you know this? One more quote from Ferguson. He says, it's not who you are or where you are that ultimately matters in the kingdom of God. It is what you are faithfulness not reputation or situation is what counts in God's kingdom it's so true God honors faithfulness in chapter 2 God will use Daniel's faithfulness to benefit even the Babylonians and he will use it even to speak truth into Nebuchadnezzar's life we, we serve a great God Well, there isn't any more grace quotes in the passage, but there's certainly an implied one that's really hard to resist, I think. That's the fourth point, and we see God's sustaining grace. And it's found just in that last statement, verse 21, where it says, And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now, that may not sound like very much, but that's a quite a statement that's being made. King Cyrus was the king of Persia who began reigning long after King Nebuchadnezzar had left the scene. You say, what happened to Babylon? Well, it fell. And, and, and it happened about 70 years later. It fell to King Cyrus and, and the Persians. And so it's such a subtle uh, truth, but, but still the truth. The mighty Babylon of verses 1 and 2, uh, the soul reigning, soul doing all this in the world, has fallen. But notice, God's servant Daniel still stands. He still stands. By that time, he would have been over 80 years old. God was faithful to sustain Daniel for some 70 years in exile. Babylonian kings came, Babylonian kings went. Another kingdom came, Persia, another king, Cyrus came, and yet God is faithful to keep Daniel. Is it not a reminder of the theme of the book we mentioned? Kings, kingdoms will rise and fall, kings will come and go. But make no mistake, the kingdom of God will endure forever. It will last forever and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. 
Now, in closing, one of the things that we have to guard ourselves from in our study is, I think, the message, uh, be like Daniel, which is maybe something that we're going to be drawn to at several points, and we certainly are today. There's certainly a hint of that in our text today about the faithfulness of, of Daniel, but I want you to know today that the message of Daniel is much greater than just be like Daniel. In fact, if we try to just be like Daniel, we're going to be sorely disappointed, I think, in our lives. The good news of the kingdom, what Daniel was about, the good news of the kingdom, the good news of the gospel, is not simply that God is faithful to those who are faithful to him. The good news is, is that a Savior has come to deliver us faithless, compromising people. Our salvation doesn't rest on the ability, our ability to remain undefiled in this world. If it did, we're in a big mess of trouble. No, our salvation rests on the perfect work of Jesus Christ. His perfect life, His substitutionary death on the cross, His resurrection from the dead... And the ultimate point of Daniel, and we need to look for this every time, the ultimate point of the story is not to look to Daniel. Oh, it is to look to Jesus, church. It is to look to him. To look to him in faith for your salvation of which you have no hope in yourself. It is to look to Jesus. It is to look to him daily for the grace that you need to help you in your time of need. It is to recognize that in the midst of a mess that you might find yourself in or difficult circumstances or a world that is literally going off of the rails, that to look to him for divine enablement to be faithful. Don't we need this church? We need this message so much. How will we ever be able to sing the Lord's song, not just today, but in these dark days that continue to come We can sing it. We can sing it because there is a God in Babylon. It is our God. There is a God in this exile. It is the God of heaven. And he is faithful and good. Lord, thank you. Reminders of this and this story, an old story, but still reminding us of precious truth that lives today. So, Lord, open our eyes to see it. If we find ourselves in places where we're struggling to sing the Lord's song, Lord, open our eyes to see your grace your presence, your work, your faithfulness all around us. And Lord, may that, as we look to you, may you empower and strengthen us as you did Daniel, granting him and his friends favor to continue in that faithfulness. We pray for that today as well. And we pray especially for those who might be here that well, perhaps today they've recognized that they have been Babylonized and they need you, your forgiveness, your salvation.
Lord, you are a God who saves. And so we pray today that as you open eyes, that those who don't know you might see you, might see your son Jesus, and they might turn to him in faith and be saved. We thank you for being a God who saves. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark. And if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.